0: Hey, uh, I don't know how many of y'all realize this, but um, the Marine Corps just celebrated their 223rd birthday. July the 11th, 1798, is when they began. Now, the Marines have become one of the most successful organizations ever created. What makes them so successful? Now, I'm not trying to trash on any of the other <laughs> armed forces we, we celebrate you all, but what is it about the Marines? Maybe part of it is their motto, which comes from maybe one of the most well-known Latin phrases in America, Semper Fidelis. And Semper Fidelis is on the Marine Corps logo here, and it means always faithful always loyal. Now, that motto was adopted in 1883 by the Marine Corps. Now, inherent in that motto is a commitment to be loyal to the mission and faithful to one another. It embodies the commitment and responsibility to serve. And every Marine I've ever known and there are no former Marines, I understand, uh, has maintained that commitment regardless of how long they've been in civilian life. I talked to a few of our Marines from Christchurch and, you know, just sort of to ask them, what, what do you feel that motto means? I talked to Rico Crawford, who just uh, more recently retired from the Marine Corps as a sergeant major. Um, He said it stands for living in an honorable way, being trustworthy. Marines count on each other. They have to know that the other Marine is going to do his job and that you're going to do your job and you're there for each other. It translates into all other areas of life. Mark Clark shared how this motto means integrity, being honest and trustworthy, loyalty to God, to country, and to Corps in that order. Chaplain Jamin Bailey shared that a Marine always lives and conducts themselves with honor, courage, and commitment. Whether in uniform or not, at home or traveling, no matter the setting, the struggle, or the temptation, a Marine lives according to that creed and those values. Now, I would say that that loyalty and that commitment is worthy of our respect and honor, wouldn't you? I mean, uh, those are wonderful sentiments. We know that every Marine doesn't necessarily live up to that, but that is what we strive for. It is a code of conduct that is worthy of our admiration, but also worthy of our duplication. Just imagine if everyone lived by that same standard. Wouldn't the world be a better place if we all lived by that motto? The Marine Corps isn't the first to discover the value of fidelity and allegiance. Long before the Marine Corps ever existed, God called the followers of Jesus to the same standard. And it's hard to live by that standard, isn't it? There are so many things that are tugging at our allegiances, and it costs something to be loyal. It may even cost our life. So this kind of loyalty can be very difficult. Now, as we continue our series, A Beginner's Guide to Greatness, the young biographer Mark quoted Jesus And from that quote, we gain a better understanding of what it means to live by faith. And our big idea for the day is this, that faith in Jesus means we have a loyalty and allegiance to Jesus. So every one of us should be asking ourselves, am I a loyal follower of Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not asking if you go to church. (laughs) I'm not asking if you read your Bible. I'm not asking if you pray. I'm not even asking if you believe in Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus is more than merely believing in Jesus. Yes, we believe, but faith requires much more. It is one thing to believe in Jesus. But Jesus wants loyalty as much as he wants belief. So when we think of faith, faith is belief plus. Now in some folks' minds, faith equals belief. They think uh, that if they believe in Jesus, they can claim to be people of faith. However, we know faith incorporates much more than belief. In James 2:19, we read, You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. There can be a recognition of who Jesus is without putting our faith in Jesus. The demons prove that. They recognize who He is. They believe who He is, but they don't follow Him. In our world, belief is often reduced to a rational recognition of a set of facts. In this case, when we think about Jesus, we think about someone who is the embodiment of God. He died on a cross. He was buried for three days and then rose from the dead to eternal life. I would imagine that every person in this room or watching on Facebook Live believes that this is true. And you know what? The demons believe this is true too. They know it is true. Maybe they know it even better than we do. Simply recognizing these facts and even being able to repeat them doesn't necessarily create the transformation in a person's life that real true faith does. I find that others in our culture want faith to be primarily an experience. They're willing to believe in or have faith in what they have seen or felt throughout their own life. This is what might be called an existentialism. Faith equals personal experience. But I want to suggest to you that biblical faith is much more than a rational or experiential belief. You know, logic can carry you just so far, spiritually, before you run up against a God who isn't limited to our intellect and imagination. God is far beyond what we can rationally imagine. Experience isn't a very good God because it's fleeting and it's inaccurate. What we feel one moment may not be what we feel in another moment. We can't rely on a faith based on merely experience. But Jesus reminds us in Mark 1:15 15, the time promised by God has come at last, He announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now the word believe, the word that was translated into English as believe, could be even better translated to have faith in. Jesus calls us to have faith in this gospel. He calls us to a new allegiance a new life. Just like the Marines are called to a new life, we are called to a new life in Christ. It's a call uh, like being transformed, to turn around, to turn away from sin, repentance. This is what Jesus is calling for. In Romans 12, too, you remember that passage, do not, be, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is a description of faith. Jesus is calling us to a transforming faith, a faith that changes us from the inside out. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, friends, a real faith is a transforming faith. We are being transformed into Jesus' image, not His physical image, but His spiritual image. The Holy Spirit is molding us into that image. And that means that our faith, uh, we, we will gain a new commitment to a new leader. We take who we are, or maybe I should say God takes who we are, and we pledge allegiance to Jesus we are pledging fidelity. That means loyalty and commitment to Jesus. Just like all military recruits, whether they're Marines or not, whatever armed forces they serve in, they take an oath to be faithful to the Constitution of the United States. And elected officials are supposed to take that oath as well. We make a public commitment, as Christians, to be faithful to Jesus Christ. A young man goes in, let's say, to the Marine Corps. He's a young 18, 19-year-old, and he's transformed into a warrior as the Marines transform him. He pledges his allegiance to his country, and he commits to lay down his life, if necessary, to protect it. And friends, as Christians, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we declare our faith in him, we are pledging our fidelity, our loyalty to Christ, to lay down our life if necessary. So faith is belief plus, and let's add a word to that, plus trust. It means we totally trust Jesus. We believe in Him, and we trust that He is able to do what He says He will do. In Luke, we read the story about a Roman officer who had this amazing faith. Uh, In Luke chapter 7, we begin reading in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, The man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Now, I want you to think about the context. This is truly an amazing story. Here you have a Roman commander who actually cares about his servant. And not only that, but he is a Gentile soldier who is asking for Jesus to come help His servant. Now, this was crossing so many lines, culturally and socially and politically. And the commentary about this commander is really startling. He was a Roman soldier who actually cared about the Jewish people. Now, that was unheard of. This man... Even help the Jewish community build a synagogue. Think about that. It goes even further when the spiritual nature of this event is uncovered. In Luke seven, we read in verse six. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, "Lord, don't trouble yourself." For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, I want you to think about this Roman commander who had such a great faith in Jesus that he trusted that if Jesus just gave the command, wherever he was, his servant would be healed. He understood the concept of the command structure. He accepted Jesus' authority and power and he trusted that if Jesus just said the word his servant would be healed that is what faith is faith is belief plus trust it is It prompted Jesus to say something unbelievable about this man in verse 9 of Luke 7. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Wow! Here's a Roman commander, a military man, who had more faith than even the Jewish religious leaders had. They were God's people. He was a Gentile. Now, what do we make of a statement like that? What does faith like this look like in our own life? What do we even mean when we talk about faith? Friends, I hope when we are asked to believe in Jesus or have faith in the gospel, that we will do that. What do you do with that? Just agree on some statement about Jesus? Well, yes, that's true. I believe. No, it's more than that. The modern Marine Corps motto and the example of the Roman centurion point us in the right direction. Faith is belief plus trust, but it's also belief plus fidelity. Now, what does fidelity mean? Faithfulness to a person, a cause, or belief, demonstrated by continuing loyalty and support. Newsweek uh, magazine, back in 1990, ran an article titled, Letters in the Sand. It was a compilation of letters written by military personnel to family and friends in the United States during the Gulf War. One was written by Marine Corps uh, uh, Corporal Preston Coffer. He told a friend, we're talking about Marines, not the Boy Scouts. We all joined the service knowing full well what might be expected of us. And he signed off with the motto, "Simplify." Now that's not to put down the Boy Scouts, but it's to say there is a greater expectation of loyalty and commitment. Scripture teaches us that faith requires that same kind of loyalty to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 4, 2, we read, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. When you claim to have faith, you're making the claim that you are faithful. In his latest book, The Search for Common Good, Jake Meter writes, love also must be faithful because when we love, we do not simply will the person's good a single time and then stop. We see this in marriage and parenting, of course, but friendship should be faithful as well. In the aftermath of my father's injury, one of the qualities of we most appreciated, in many of my parents' friends, was their fidelity. One woman from the church is still mowing their yard once a week over three years after dad's injury. We could depend on them not simply on the day of the injury, but a month later, a year later, three years later. So fidelity is that quality of loyalty. When you have faith, you keep the faith. Think about the things that we keep faith with or to whom we keep loyalty to. I mean, we say that we're faithful to Jesus, but in times that are difficult, do we maintain that faith? We say we our members are members or faithful to a church, but in times that become difficult, do we remain faithful and loyal to that church? What the Bible describes as faith in Christ means we have that loyalty to him. We will die before we deny our faith. We don't quit on Jesus because he never quits on us. When things don't go the way we want them to go, we don't abandon Jesus. We don't abandon our faith. We don't abandon our church. When the culture makes it difficult, we don't deny our faith. Someone shared this story. It was actually shared anonymously, and maybe you will understand why as we read through it. But he wrote, right after I finished sixth grade, my family moved to a new town. As I started junior high that fall, I suddenly found myself in a school I didn't know, in a town I didn't know with people I didn't know. I felt very lonely. Nobody knew me, and nobody wanted to talk to me. Each day, I would walk home alone wondering, is there a friend here for me? Then one day, a kid named Earl invited me to his house after school. I jumped at it. Earl was kind of like the other kids, um, but he had shiny hair, which means he wasn't particularly concerned about personal hygiene, okay? Near his house was a parking lot where the electric company parked its trucks and heavy equipment. Earl knew how to sneak in there, and we clambered all over the big rigs and the augers and had a lot of fun. Earl and I began to build a friendship. After a couple of months of sizing up this seventh grade classroom, I made an important realization. The kids who seemed to be the most popular, the kids who were really good at sports, the kids who had the best clothes The kids whom the girls whispered about and blushed over were not Earl. They were two guys, Mike and Eddie. So when Mike and Eddie finally invited me over to their house, I was exhilarated. This was my ticket to the big time. But I had one problem. Wherever Mike and Eddie were, Earl was not. And wherever Earl was, Mike and Eddie were not. And if I was going to hang out with Mike and Eddie, I could not be seen with Earl. I knew it. So I made a decision. I went over to Mike and Eddie's houses, and I struck up a friendship with them. And I became in with those popular kids. And when Earl called me, I kept putting him off by saying, I'm kind of busy. All those years since that time, there's still a shame around that betrayal because the truth is I betrayed Earl. I handed him another rejection in his life when he'd probably had so many. But I wanted something. I wanted that in. I wanted that popularity. If I had to hurt him, I would do it. And that is the essence of betrayal. I'm willing to hurt you to get something for myself. You know, friends, sometimes we treat Jesus the same way. We are faithful to Jesus so long as we can still have the world, too. But if choosing Jesus means giving up that worldly stuff, that lifestyle or the friend that's dragging me away... Unfortunately for many who claim to have faith, they cut the ties with Jesus. Faith means loyalty, friends. And one more thing, faith is belief plus action. Now, this may be an oxymoron. I'm not exactly sure. I don't know how many different types of morons there are, but uh, uh, if faith is not active, it isn't faith at all. Think about that. If faith isn't active, then there is no faith. James 2, 17 and 18 remind us of this truth. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. Now, he's not saying we're saved by our good deeds, but what he's saying is that our good deeds are a reflection of the faith that we have. And if there aren't any good deeds, then that's a reflection of the faith we don't have. We've been talking about some core elements. If we're going to be successful in our Christian life over the last few weeks, our battle isn't against flesh and blood, it is spiritual. Our message is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Our mission is to go out into all the world and make disciples for Jesus, who will then live that mission themselves. And this takes faith for us to do this. Fidelity, loyalty, commitment. It is all of us taking up the battle cry, semper fidelis for the sake of Jesus. Basically, if we're seeking salvation through our efforts, we ask, is this all I have to do? That's, if, if you think your deeds will save you, that's the question, is this all I have to do? But when we live our allegiance to God, we're going to ask a different question. What else can I do? That is the question of faith. And friends, faith works. And by that, I mean faith actively serves the one we are committed to. We don't make excuses. We don't look for ways out. We don't retire from serving the Lord. I mean, we might retire from a particular area of service. But we serve the Lord to the end of our life. Faith also works because it does change our life. And I want to close with this story. <coughs> I read about a young lady named Putti Sok. She told all of her Christian college friends leave me alone and quit praying for me. <laughs> Maybe you know somebody that's done that too. Putti described herself as a Cambodian Buddhist girl, even though she was born in Long Beach, California, and grew up in Dallas. Okay? She, she would later write, I figured I was Buddhist because my parents told me I was Buddhist. I thought Christianity was just a religion for Americans. And eventually Pudi came to understand or consider herself as an evangelistic atheist because she would challenge others to prove that God exists. When she started her college education at the University of Texas in 2008, one of her goals was to build some deeper relationships. And she succeeded in that, but some of her new friends were Christians, and they were very active in a student ministry. During her sophomore year, she says she hit a wall. And she began to think, I, I, to, to see that everything I was doing was becoming meaningless if what I was doing didn't have eternal meaning, then it was all in vain. And she began to think, if God is real, he should be able to hear my prayers. And each night she began to pray that he would help her understand what she had been hearing from her friends, because it seemed like foolishness to her. And then one day, Puthi entered a closet in the student ministry building that had been turned into a prayer room. And inside was a bowl that was filled with pieces of paper with the names of students' friends, the friends that they had been praying for. And she began rifling through those little pieces of paper. And one after another, she looked at the slips of paper and found her own name written on the slips. She knew how strongly she had urged her friends not to pray for her, (laughs) and yet they had faithfully loved her and prayed for her anyway. And she burst into tears that day. And in that tiny room, she says, God was softening my heart then. And the next night, she felt that God was asking her for a specific response. So she finally accepted Jesus as her Savior. She would write, all of a sudden, I had a desire to go and share with people. God is real, and he has changed my heart. And now she's studying to be a full-time minister. We see in that story both the work of the faithful, as Pudi's friends prayed for her faithfully, but we also see how faith finally worked for her. It makes all the difference in her life. It wasn't just belief, but it was trust, and it was loyalty to Christ, and it was putting that trust into action. So friends, I, I just want to remind you of that prayer. For, pray for the One campaign that we're doing this month, where we've asked you to put a name down and pray for that person for 30 days. I hope that you've been doing that. You never know, like with Pudi, you know, her friends faithfully prayed for her. And it begins with prayer. So begin to pray for those friends. Be faithful in that effort, praying for the one that maybe God can use you to connect to them. And so, maybe if you weren't here over the last couple of weeks, you could write that name down now and you can begin praying for them. And so, today, uh, as we close, I want you just to think about that motto always faithful. That is the essence of faith. Father, we come to you today and we're so grateful and thankful for your love and for your grace and that you have always been faithful to us. You have proved your faithfulness time and time and time again. Even when we have been unfaithful, Father, you have been faithful to us. And so, Father, we come to you and we pray that we will exhibit that same faithfulness to you. That no matter what happens, no matter what comes, no matter what doesn't work right or what does work right, that we will be faithful to you. That our faith would be genuine, not just a belief and a set of uh, truths, but a life-changing, transforming faith that we hold on to until we meet you, God. We say a special prayer this week for Tommy Barnes' family, especially Glenda. Uh, At the loss of Tommy this past week, we pray, God, that you would watch over them and give them comfort and peace and strength as they hold on to that faith that Tommy had. We pray this in Jesus' name.